Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page. Hold on, I want to get the right microphone here. Is my, is my microphone on? I'm sorry to do this. Can you guys hear me properly? Perfectly. Perfectly. You're a little echoey to me, but I'm not sure. Are you on a different microphone? Yeah, there we go. Hold on. Okay, there we go. Now, can you hear me now? That's much better. Yeah, yeah is that better? That, that, okay, score. There we go. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't plugged in. Okay, the story begins. <laughs> Take two. Um, we're on page 56. We're continuing to explore Tachnun. Tachnun is the confessional forgiveness vulnerability prayer, and there's multiple pieces to this prayer. It takes place after the Amidah. And we explained that once it, one goes through the experience of the Shema, the Shema, the Shema, you cover your eyes because you say, you know, I have to experience God. I can't just see him. And sometimes experiencing is deeper than just seeing because seeing is very external. Picture is worth a thousand words. So you do get a lot when you see. But an experience is deeper than that. Just, just to be quite blunt, in Jewish law, when couples are intimate, it's supposed to be dark. Because it's supposed to be an experience. And sometimes visuals get in the way of experience. Limit the experience. So we say the Shema. We cover our eyes. We say God is one. We go through that experience. And you know what the reaction to that is? We love God. We experience true emotion. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. All of your hearts. We then revere God. We then get into the space where we're ready to just talk to him quietly. The Amidah. We're ready to realize that we're dependent on him. The Amid is the only prayer that's recited um, silently. It needs to be silent because if we're so close to God, we don't need to be loud. We're right there. You know, when you're when you're talking to somebody from a distance, you gotta be loud. But when you're right there, you it's with the Amidah, we're right there. We now at this point have the ability to be vulnerable with God, to be honest with God. To realize that there's a right and that there's a wrong. There's a true and there's an untrue. And have that opportunity to rectify them. And that's the Tachnun Vidui confessional forgiveness prayer. Starts off with the confession. We then spoke about the 13 attributes of mercy. We then spoke about Nefilat Apayim. Why we cover our ourselves, right? We're in that intimate space with God. Then on page 56, we discuss... A portion of the Tachnun prayer that's only recited on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, our Tachnun discussion the past few weeks had been quite timely because it was around the high holiday season, Yom Kippur, the days of Teshuvah. But we're now in this season of joy, Sukkot, and we're not reciting Tachnun. Anyways, these prayers wouldn't be recited at this time of year. Right? On joyous occasions, Shabbos, or you know, in the Sukkot season, these prayers aren't recited anyways. But on days that Tachnun is recited, there's a special supplementary prayer for Mondays and Thursdays. What's the history behind that? Why is davening longer on Mondays and Thursdays? I used to know the answer to this. And I'm... Oh, yeah? Okay. The Torah is read. Oh, okay, I... good. The Torah is read on Mondays and Thursdays, right? I... So same I... question. What's unique about Mondays and Thursdays that the Torah is read? 
I remember because you want no more than like three days between taking out the Torah. Okay, good. So, so when you know Moses established reading the Torah every single week, right? Ezra, which was give or take a thousand years later, a little less than a thousand years later, established reading the Torah. Um, th- Mondays and Thursdays as well, right? Don't go three days without Torah. But why Mondays and Thursdays? What's what's unique about those days? And why are those days have a longer forgiveness prayer, a longer talking prayer? So here's what the commentaries explain. Going back to the story of the sin of the golden calf, the Jews are standing at Mount Sinai. We receive the Torah from God. We're on this high. We're inspired. We fall in love with God. And we fall out of love with God or fall in love with a calf. <laughs> it, that's That was the capacity of our love. Um, it took 40 days to, for God to forgive us. 40 days later. That was Yom Kippur, right? So Moses comes down from the mountain on the 17th of Tammuz. He's holding the tablets. He sees us cheating on God. He smashes the tablets. He then goes back up to beseech mercy, recite the 13 attributes of mercy, he comes back down 40 days later. He And the Talmud says the day that he went up was a Thursday. The day that he came down 40 days later, which was Yom Kippur, was a Monday. Yom Kippur was on a Monday that year, kind of like this year as well. 17th of Talmud is probably on a Thursday, right? And, and, and actually commentaries go through the whole math equation proving that it was those days implying that there's something unique about Thursdays and Mondays. For some reason, Mondays and Thursdays, Thursdays and Mondays, are days of mercy. Opportune times to pray. Opportune times to beseech God. It's for that reason that the that there's a longer, more suppl- uh, supplementary forgiveness prayer, tachrin prayer, recited on Mondays and Thursdays. Moses went up on a Thursday, came down four days later, Yom Kippur on a Monday. And it's for that reason that Torah reading was established on those days as well. They're correlated. Now there's an interesting history behind this prayer. You'll notice it's a long prayer. It goes from page 56 all the way till 59. Right, Three extra pages that you would not recite on a non-Monday or Thursday. It's kind of like a mini slichos prayer. Slichos are the supplementary forgiveness prayers recited, you know, coming up to Rosh Hashanah. This is like a miniature version of that. Recited on Mondays and Thursdays. And there's a, there's a story behind this. There's various versions of the story, exactly how it happened and when it happened. But I'm going to go with the version of a book called the Kolbo. Anybody heard of the Kolbo? The Kolbo is a Kolbo literally translates as everything within it. It's a halacha book, anonymously authored. We don't really know who authored it. There's different theories. It's actually quoted by the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, um, a great deal, quite often. So in that regard, we know that it has some level of credibility, obviously, even though it's anonymous. And here's the story that he quotes. 
he takes us back to the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash. So again, just to give you a, a general bird's eye view of the history. Real general. Jewish people leave Egypt 50 days later, get the Torah 40 years later, are welcomed or, or led into Israel by Joshua. Right? They're dividing and conquering that land for 14 years. You know when they build the Beit HaMikdash? 370-something years later. King David comes around and conquers Jerusalem 300 and something years later. 300, my money gives the exact number, and I forgot. 300 and something years later. So we still haven't permanently planted ourselves the way we wanted to. Finally, the Beit HaMikdash comes. Built by Solomon. King David conquered the land. Solomon builds it. This house for God. This place where we can come and experience the divine. This resting place for God. That lasts for 410 years. The Babylonians destroy it. Jews are exiled to Babylon. Um, this is at this point when Ezra established many, many parts of the Siddur, such as the Amida and some other prayers as well. Um, that lasted for 70 years. This is also when the story of Purim took place, just to give the historical context. That lasts for 70 years. Ezra gets up and says, guys, it's time to go back to Israel. It's time to go back to our homeland. It's time to go back and build the space of Mikdash. They knew through prophecy that it was only going to last 70 years and that they can go back at some point. And with the Herodian king's blessing, who was in control of Israel at that point, they were actually able to build the second base of Mikdash. Unfortunately, it was nothing like the first. Physically, it was more beautiful. Spiritually, it was a mess. The corruption of the various Kohen Gadol, if you remember Raleigh, Rabbi Raleigh was saying in Shul that the Kohen Gadol had a chain on the back of, of him in case anything went down while he was in the Holy Folies and they had to yank him out. There was so much corruption, they almost anticipated that this guy might not be the fit for the position. And they would put a chain on him. There was a lot of corruption. Um... It was at this point that most Jews still did not live in Israel. Most Jews did not live in Israel at this point. Um, you had Jews that many Jews remain. Ezra came with like dozens, several dozen families. I forgot what the numbers were, but that's it. Many Jews stayed in Babylon. At this point, you had Jews in Yemen that have remained up until a century ago or half a century ago. You had Jews remaining in Iran up until half a century ago, the fall of the Shah. You had Jews that have gone to Spain. At this point, it just wasn't the same. There was a diaspora. But as, at least we had the temple. At least we had something. At least we, we came and were able to experience God on some level. Not the same as the first, but it was something. 420 years later, the base of Mikdash is destroyed. This time not by the Babylonians, but this time by the Romans. They both took place on Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, by the way. Who was leading this destruction? Titus. Titus, as he's known as. Led this destruction. And now Jews need somewhere to go. They need to escape. 
right? Jews aren't going to be officially back in Israel. You still had a Jewish presence in Israel, but but uh, probably till 1948. It's pretty wild. You have a group of Jews that went on a boat and sailed from Israel, and there was some sort of off course. Um, they got off course, and they ended up in the middle of Africa. This is what the Kolbo says. These Jews ended up in the middle of Africa. They introduced themselves to the king of this region. The king says, who are you guys? We're Jewish people. What are Jewish people? We're descendants of Abraham. Descendants of Abraham? Isn't Abraham the one who jumped in the fire to prove his monotheistic beliefs to the evil king Nimrod? Yes, Abraham, that's him. You know him. So you guys believe in monotheism just like Abraham did? Yes. Are you willing to jump in a fire like Abraham did? Huh? Well, you want to reside on my land? You're calling yourselves Jews. You're calling yourselves children of Abraham. Do you live up to your name? If you do and you survive, I'd gladly welcome you to our country. This is what the king says to them. Huh? <laughs> what do they do? The king, so they told the king, give us three days. Let us get back to you. And for three days, they, as a community, they sat, they cried, they prayed, and they poured their hearts out to God. And over the course of three days, they compiled three prayers. Take a look on page 56. Prayer number one that they compiled on the first day is from the Hebrew word, Vihurachum, and he being compassionate all the way until page 57. Habetna, look, we beseech you. That's prayer number one that they compiled in those first three days. Prayer number two, a much shorter one. Ana melechanan verachum, we beseech you, gracious and merciful king. That's prayer number two. That's prayer number two. Prayer number three, the bottom paragraph. Ein kamocha chanun Hashem There is none gracious and compassionate like you, Lord, our God. Going all the way until page 59. Right? A long prayer, a short prayer, and then a long prayer over those three days. That's what they compiled. They then went to sleep. That night, and several people reported to have similar dreams. They had a dream of learning Torah. And what were they learning? They were learning the book of Isaiah. They were learning Isaiah 53, verse 2, prophesizing. That at some point you'll go into a fire and you will not become harmed. They were given the confidence that their prayer was answered and that they should accept the king's challenge. The king put them in this furnace and a miracle similar to Abraham took place. They came out unharmed and were able to live in peace.
This prayer was then later shared and incorporated in part of the Siddur. I'm not sure at what point in history, but incorporated within the Siddur um, as a as a supplementary prayer to be recited every Monday and Thursday. With that message that, yes, we're in hard times, but we believe, we have faith, and we know God is here for us. And that even in these difficult times, we know God is merciful, and we know God wants us here. That was the story. That's the story behind this prayer. That's what the Kolbo writes. And the Kolbo is not the only one that writes this story. There's several commentaries that write this story with slight variations as to what the country was, what the time period was, but they all have the same story. So it, it's interesting. It's not that old of a prayer. It's relative like to the Amida. The Amida is written by Ezra. This is authored 500 years later. We're not going to read through the whole prayer today and go into it uh, verse by verse, but there's a couple of points within each of the three sections that I'd like to hone in on. And I think this, we can see this as three steps toward becoming a better version of ourselves. Sounds good? Sounds good. Okay. So number one, it starts, let's go back to 56. We say, and he being compassionate, pardons iniquity and does not destroy time and time again. He turns away his anger and does not arouse all his wrath. Now God is patient. He's merciful, which, which is a big deal, by the way, because we, we uh, think about how patient we are or impatient we are. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, we're, we're patient to an extent. And at some point, you know, we we reached our limit. We reached the end of our patience. Uh, by by nature, we could fight that nature, but by default, we reach the end of our patience, and we say, "God, you don't do that." If you're an infinite God, then you should be infinitely patient, which is an incredible thing, a beautiful thing. And here's what we say. Take a look at the bottom, um, zoom down to the bottom, scroll down to the bottom of 56, where it says, give ear, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolate places in the city upon which your name is proclaimed. For it is, right, again, these people were recently expelled from Jerusalem because the, the people who authored this prayer, right? They were kicked, they, they, it was following the destruction of the first, of the second temple. For it's not on account of our own righteousness that we offer our supplications before you, but because of your abounding mercies. That is beautiful. God, be merciful towards us, not because we're deserving. Never ask God for what you deserve, by the way. Pro tip. <laughs> Never ask God for what you deserve. Ask God to be kind. Ask God to be merciful. Um, that, that's a more humble approach. Because we don't want what we deserve. Right, God, it's not because of our own account. It's not because of our own righteousness. It's not because of our own deeds. You yourself are a merciful God. You yourself are a merciful being. Forgive us not because we deserve forgiveness. Forgive us because you are forgiving. And you know what the difference is? 
if I claim to deserve forgiveness, God might say, mm, let me look a little closer. <laughs> Let's examine. If I say, God, forgive because you are forgiving. Okay. Can't argue with that. <laughs> Not much to say to that one, right? Take a look on the next page, 57. You look at the bottom. So, so if you go to the, the first paragraph and count seven lines up from the bottom of the first paragraph, do you see it? As a father has compassion. As a father has compassion on his children, so Lord have mercy on us and help us for the sake of your name. Be compassionate like a parent. Right? Why does a parent love their children? Think about this. Why do you love your children? Now, if you come up with a reason, don't tell me any. <laughs> that's a problem. We don't have reasons why we love our children. We love our children. We only have reasons once they're like teenagers. Then we start coming up with reasons why we love our children. We have to come up with excuses and we just send them out to college and we try to come up with good reasons. They're smart. They're cute. They're... <laughs> Till they, once we walk them down the aisle, right? Now we love them again. Um, in all seriousness, we love our children because they're our children. There's no reason. It's because they're cute. It's because they're, no. It's because they're smart, because they're good performers. That may or may not be true, and it's all subjective. There's only one reason to love your children. Because they're your children. So it's not a reason. It's not rational. It's it's super rational. You don't love them because of a reason. You love them because you're connected to them. Because they're a part of you. God, we're a part of you. So have mercy as a parent would on their child. Not because I deserve it. Not because it makes sense. Because we're connected. Have mercy on me, God. That's what we're saying here. Right? We're reframing the relationship. We're reminding God, or really reminding ourselves, as if God needs that reminder, but reminding ourselves what our relationship with God is. Your child is your child, whether or not they follow the family rules, the house rules. Your child might not follow the house rules, and that might not be okay. They're still your child. They're still your child. They can't lose that status. An employee can be fired. Friendships can wither. Even marriages can lead to divorce. But you can't disown your child. Uh, people try to. It just doesn't work. You can be estranged, but it doesn't work. The connection's always there. So God, see us as a child. The relationship's always there. And by the way, if we wanted to emulate God, perhaps we can try that. Let's ask ourselves, am I ever forgiving, not because of the offender's merits, but because I'm a forgiving person? What did they say? Somebody said recently that resentment is like um, lighting yourself on, on fire, trying to kill the other guy with your own with the smoke. <laughs> am I ever forgiving because I'm a forgiving person? Like God is infinitely forgiving. Even if the individual doesn't forgive it, uh, doesn't deserve it. 
am I ever forgiving because I'm looking at that person as a parent would look at a child? There's something there that's pure, beyond the frustration, beyond the disappointment. There's a deep connection, and it's there. We're trying to awaken that with God. And when reciting this prayer, it might be an opportune time to ask that own question inwardly toward ourselves. Can I be a more forgiving person? Let's take a look at the next prayer. 57, it's the third paragraph. This is the second prayer that they recited in this story, created in this story. And here's what we say. We beseech you, well, read the paragraph, it's short. We beseech you, gracious and merciful king, remember and look upon the covenant between the divided sacrifice with Abraham. Let the binding upon the altar of his only son appear before you. And for the sake of Israel, our father, do not forsake us. Our Father, do not abandon us. Our King, do not forget us. Our Creator, and do not bring destruction upon us in exile, commensurate with our sins. For you, God, are gracious and a compassionate King. We're asking God to have mercy on us. Um, again, not for reason, but because He made a deal with us. A covenant. But that's what a covenant is. Give, give me one second. I, I apologize. But God made a covenant with us. He made a deal with us. The deal is, you're my people, I'm your God. And we're all in this together. But that's what a deal is. A covenant is, it's called a bris. God made a bris with us. A covenant. A unnegotiable commitment. It's like a marriage. Marriage means, you know what the point in marriage is? Why get married? What's the point? <laughs> marriage, marriage means you have something else other than your own feelings or your own uh in uh, appreciation to connect you something bigger to connect you right husband and wife go in a chuppah there's something bigger than them that encompasses them that's what marriage is that what connects me to you is not just because I want you because what happens when I'm not feeling it anymore what happens when I'm just not in the mood or what happens when things really aren't working and that's why when things aren't working and Divorce is an option in Judaism. That's why there's divorce. Divorce means we have to officially separate that big connection. Now, with God, that doesn't work. And you know why? Because a divorce is, is two-sided. There's what's called a get in Judaism, right? A get is the divorce document that creates an, an official separation between husband and wife. The husband gives the wife a get, a divorce document. They're now separated. But in order for the divorce to be valid, she has to actually receive the get. He has to give it, she has to receive it. Even if God wanted out of this relationship, he wouldn't. But theoretically, we would have to accept it. <laughs> and there's no way we're accepting that. 
right? So that that that's a covenant. There's something bigger that's binding ourselves together. I read somewhere else that God can't divorce us because divorce in the framework of Jewish law means you have to be in two separate spaces. But God is never in a separate space. God is everywhere. <laughs> it's the only mitzvah God can't do. Only Jewish practice God can't do because there's no place where God is not. Okay, but point being, a covenant means there's something bigger than us binding us together. God, remember this covenant. The covenant that you made with Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. Remember our infinite connection. And by the way, if we wanted to emulate God, can we be patient with people? Can we commit to people? To our fellows as Jews. We commit to each other. I don't mean only in the context of a marriage. I mean, just in general, can we commit to loving our fellow and to being more patient with the fellow for no other reason other than the fact that there's something bigger that unites us all? Like a covenant. Like, can we be infinitely patient like God? Okay. Number three. It starts with the last paragraph on 57. In Kamocha. There is none gracious and compassionate like you, Lord our God. Nothing can really compare to God. Nobody can create like God does. We think about how sophisticated this world is. Nobody can emulate God perfectly. Nobody can be as forgiving as God. If God is infinite, he has infinite ability to create, he has infinite capacity to be compassionate, to be forgiving. Take a look on 58, second paragraph. Again, I'm just pointing out a couple lines here and there that 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 are I think are are meaningful to hone in on when reading this. You open your hands to receive the repentance of transgressors and sinners. Our soul is confounded by our deep sorrow. Do not forget us forever. Arise and help us. God opens up his hand. He's waiting for our return. He's waiting for us to do teshuva. He's waiting for us to come back. He's not out to get us. That's amazing. You, you know what happens when, when somebody offends us? We forgive them. They offend us again. We forgive them. They offend us a third time. We forgive them. The fourth time, you know what we do? We get angry. And then you know what happens? It gets worse. We hope they offend again. You ever have that? We hope they do it again. So we could say, see, I told you. I knew you were going to come late. I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to think that. I knew it. We're anticipating it. We're waiting for it. We get, we, we almost, you know, sometimes we feed off negative energy and wait for it. God's not like that. God is infinitely forgiving to the point that he's not waiting for us to mess up again. Even if he knows we're going to mess up again. He's not waiting for that. It just doesn't, he's not doing that. He's not playing that game. He's bigger than that. He's more mature than that. 
He's waiting for our return. Can we emulate God? And not get excited by people's mess-ups and feel good about it so we could just feel vindicated. Can we genuinely await people, um, be patient for people to, 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 to return and, 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 and have the patience for them to correct themselves? You look at the end of that paragraph. Third to last line of that same paragraph. Do you see it? Remember, remember our testimony. Remember our testimony, which we proclaim with love twice each day, right? The Shema Israel. Here we're Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. God, forgive us because you need us. We're useful. We have a mission as Jewish people to illuminate the world, to be like Abraham and share that Hashem Echad, God is one. That doesn't mean we need to preach with picketing signs. The, the Lord will save you. <laughs> I mean, we we can be we can be intellectual and sophisticated and uh, about it, and have meaningful conversation and teach and live by example. But as Jews, we have an obligation and responsibility to live with godly sacred values, to share with the world that God is one. That's why the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. If you look in the Torah, even in the Siddur, the Ayin of the Shema, the Dalad of the Echad, are larger, larger font. It spells the word aid, witness, testimony. We're here to testify the truth of God. We're here to reveal that classified information. So yes, God, I messed up. Yes, I fell off the bandwagon. But come on. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm not useful. I still have a mission and you know it. You still need me. I'm still necessary. A big part of Teshuvah, of returning, it's not just regretting our sins. It's returning to the realization that I was created for a very unique purpose. And making this world a more divine and meaningful place. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>